is an Odyssey original. This is KX in depth. I'm Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. The Earth hits a major milestone. The United Nations says we now have eight billion people on the planet. Now that has some people wondering about environmental impacts, but. Many experts say the big problem is still consumption, which is a much larger issue in developed countries. We'll go in depth into the population boom. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy on the path to become House Speaker, but he has some formidable bumps along the way. And former President Trump is set to officially start another run for the White House tonight. But can he even make it out of a Republican primary? A reported Russian missile strike that hit Poland has killed two people. This could possibly complicate matters for all connected to the war in Ukraine. We'll go in-depth into what could happen next. Iran's government is going after teenagers and other young people who are protesting. There are reports of beatings and shootings. The vote count in L.A. County continues, but we'll get to ask the person in charge what's going on and when will it finish. And it's not just you if you think people are meaner and ruder today. And we'll go into the results of a new survey. What do you mean by that? I don't know. I don't know. You're no, just, what do you mean? think we're rude? You're not smart enough to yeah. handle oh, this. Oh, well, in that case, you. All right. We'll, we'll talk about that later. We start, though, <laughs> with the world population hits 8 billion and what it means for Earth, you know, like where we all live. Christina Dahl is the uh, principal climate scientist for the Climate and Energy Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists. Christina, thanks for being with us. Well, 8 billion people, I mean, I, I guess it, it's an estimate. I mean, nobody knows the exact number, but thereabouts, 8 billion, and it is a large number of people no matter how you count it. And the implications for all of us, no matter where we live, are really profound, aren't they? They are. And yet I think it's really important to point out that even though population has grown very rapidly in the last few decades, that pace isn't projected to continue. Um, it's already slowing in much of Europe, for example. Um, and fertility rates in Europe are uh, projected to be below the replacement rate now and populations expected to decline by 2050. So we don't expect this real population boom that we've seen over the last few decades to continue. Um, it's also really important to note that the relationships between the number of people on the planet and environmental degradation, climate change, deforestation, species loss, these are not simple or direct relationships. Um, so as we look for solutions for some of those really pressing problems that our planet has, it's important that we focus on the real solutions rather than population growth. You know, it's interesting that you talk about the population boom perhaps uh, declining. There was a science fiction movie out in the early 70s, uh, Soylent Green. A lot of people know about it. It was set, I believe, in this year. It was set in the year 2022 with a completely overpopulated Earth. But you're telling us it doesn't look like that's going to happen. And, you know, the concern is resources. And uh, first of all, the first question is why... Would the population decline if not because of some worldwide catastrophe like a like a major uh, pandemic? And uh, does this bode well for our lack of resources that we have to deal with right now? Yeah. So back in the 70s, there was a really harmful narrative that actually goes back much farther than that, that um, 
there were too many people on the planet and that that was sort of the source of all of these ills that we were experiencing. And that narrative is deeply problematic. It often points back to um, black and brown people, uh, people in developing countries, people with low incomes who really have contributed the least to some of these problems that we experience. And when we look at why population might decline, a lot of it has to do with education and access to contraception and reproductive freedom. So as um, women are able to control their fertility more, they often naturally tend to have fewer children. And so that's something that we've seen um, here in the U.S., across Europe. Okay, but but I, but Christina, I I do want to instead of focusing too much on on uh, the future, I, I do want to kind of uh, get you to focus on now, uh, which is regardless of whether or not the uh, boom is going to accelerate or decelerate, we still have some eight billion people on the planet. We're at a time when, because of climate change, there are large parts of the of the Earth right here in the United States, as you know, where we have drought conditions, water is becoming scarcer, uh, farmland is drying up, uh, the amount of seafood available in some parts of the world radically changing because the ocean currents and temperatures are changing. So the real question before us, I think, is not so much what happens in the next 30, 40, 50, 80 years. What happens now when the 8 billion people who are now on the planet are in some parts of the world, including parts of the U.S., facing some pretty dire conditions. Absolutely. I mean, climate change is affecting all of us. And if it hasn't come for you personally, then it likely will. Um, and so what we need to focus on are solutions that will minimize future climate change and increase the resilience of people to the climate change impacts that we are experiencing now and today. So um, some of those real climate solutions are you know, transforming our power systems so that we're less reliant on fossil fuels, decreasing emissions from the transportation sector, you know, just switch to electric vehicles that run on clean power, um, and focusing on measures that reduce um, individual and community carbon footprints. So a lot of the climate ills that we're experiencing are directly tied to carbon intensive lifestyles that we in the U.S. in particular tend to lead, uh, tend to um, live. So, you know, focusing in on these heavy consumers of fossil fuels like we are in the United States and transforming our energy systems are, are really some of the solutions that will help to keep us safe. Thank you uh, very much for your uh, input. Christina Dahl, the uh, principal climate scientist for Climate and Energy uh, Program of the Union of Concerned Scientists. Right now, though, it looks like the Republicans will, in fact, take control of the House, though it will be by a slim majority. Now, that has people wondering who is going to be House Speaker. All signs are pointed toward California's Kevin McCarthy. He did win the Republican nomination for House Speaker today, but he's hardly a lock. With us to explain is Kerry Pickett, senior congressional reporter for The Washington Times. Kerry, thanks for being with us, I know that that uh, Congressman McCarthy has long uh, sought after the post of Speaker of the House, and I think was probably uh, just about as sure as one could be going into Election Day that the Republicans would have that massive red sweep that didn't happen, and that that sweep would easily sweep him into the position of uh, the Speaker of the House. But it's not going to be that easy, is it? No, no, it certainly isn't going to be made easy. 
Uh, you had a, you know a number of uh, lawmakers uh, over in the Republican conference who uh, gave him a hard time uh, during this particular leadership elections, uh, saying that he failed to uh, really bring this red wave that a number of leaders, including Mr. McCarthy, said was going to happen. So ultimately, uh, during today's leadership election, he uh, you know, ended up prevailing how everyone predicted, but he ended up prevailing 188 to 31. He was challenged by uh, Congressman Andy Biggs of Arizona. But like I said, this was predicted because this wasn't so much uh, you know, Andy Biggs saying, well, I'm going to beat you. This was more telling uh, Mr. McCarthy, look, you're not going to get 218 on the floor. This is because that's what he's going to need on the floor. And if Mr. McCarthy is going to have a very slim majority, if and when, and it seems like when that that majority is going to happen, he's going to need literally um, or pretty much every single Republican member uh, that is going to be sworn in on January 3rd. So what are the challenges is uh, McCarthy going to be facing? Uh, I hear uh, rumbles that uh, Rick Scott uh, may uh, put up a fight. Is uh, Rick Scott uh, a threat? Will that draw enough support away from him uh, and that perhaps well, Rick, McCarthy will fall? Well, well, Rick Scott's over in the Senate, so, you know. That's I'm, you know, I'm so sorry. My brain just <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just had a brain freeze there for a second. Yeah. Uh, but but uh, uh, I don't know who I was referring to. But does Kevin McCarthy face another challenge from somebody else in in the caucus? I mean, and, and also what part is Marjorie Taylor Greene going to play in this? Well, um, it doesn't look like he's going to be challenged um, anymore. It looks like, uh, you know, this particular uh, nominations over. He was just particularly nominated to uh, represent his conference, uh, and you know, unless anything is is a brought to the floor, I I doubt it. Uh, he will likely be challenged by a by a Democrat uh, come come January. Uh, so, which is why uh, every single Republican vote is going to be absolutely necessary. Uh, come come January, uh, that which is why you know you have reporters who are pretty much going to be asking, you know, is your conference completely unified behind you? So this is why uh, you have Republicans, particularly Freedom Caucus members, asking him, well, hey, if you want our support, well then here's a list of demands we want from you. We want to make sure, for example, that omnibus packages and, and when omnibuses are, are a bunch of uh, separate spending packages all mushed together uh, and uh, pretty much passed at the end of the year. We don't want those anymore. You know, we want to prohibit omnibus packages. We want to be able to uh, have a uh, one House member to be able to call for the uh, speaker to be ousted <laughs> from the uh, House floor to, to basically call a vote for that. That's called vacating the, the, right. the chair. Um, Terry, so, let, let me ask you this, because uh, since uh, Rob mentioned uh, Rick Scott, uh, what I'm sure he meant to say is that uh, Scott is saying that he wants to challenge Mitch McConnell uh, in, the, in the Senate. Uh, is that something that uh, is actually – I mean, he can challenge him, I suppose, but is there any real chance that Mitch McConnell can lose his position as leading well, the Republicans um, in the Senate? Okay, well, that is, you know, that really depends on 
whether or not uh, you know uh, Rick Scott has the support of a uh, of enough members behind him. You know, Rick Scott kind of angered a number of uh, members in in his conference uh, back in the day when when he brought up his ten point plan. So, uh, yeah, that's something that he has to sort of contend with. Also, remember, Rick Scott led the NRSC, and even though McConnell angered many Republicans when he put money behind, or, 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 or rather, you know, starved money from a number of really quality Republican candidates like uh, Blake Masters over in Arizona and uh, didn't help Don Bolduck over in New Hampshire, for example, or, uh, you know, for that matter, uh, didn't help uh, or, or ended up uh, running ads against Don Bulldog over in the primaries. Uh, that, uh, you know, that's something against McConnell. But then for as far as Rick Scott was concerned, people are going to look at him and say, well, what was your problem with the recruiting quality candidates for the NRSC? What's up with you? So that could be a problem for him. All right. Thank you so much. Uh, That is Kerry Pickett, senior congressional reporter for The Washington Times. Coming up, Iran's government reportedly going after teenage protesters using violence. And have you experienced more rudeness lately? A new survey shows it's more common now than you might think. Right now, though, former President Trump is set to formally announce yet another presidential run. This comes after Republicans underperformed in the midterms and comes as many candidates endorsed by Mr. Trump lost. David McEwen is a political analyst and political science professor at Sonoma State University. Thank you so much for joining us. So our uh, my first question is this is. Is Donald Trump wounded now in the Republican Party is is not winning the thing that's going to draw the line for many Republican supporters? No, he certainly is wounded. And if you look at what happened last week and the fallout from that, if you think about politics, it's mostly about timing. His his timing is, is pretty poor. He's helped the GOP to losses in 2018 and 2022, two midterms, presidential loss in 2020. And obviously, Rick DeSantis had a good week last week. The president, did, the former president, did not. Mike Pence rolling out of his book today, uh, also kind of a, a shot across the bow, if you will. And that means that Donald Trump, despite all of this, is still the early favorite because he can rally that base. And Republicans have not settled on whether he's going to be with the future of the party or not. And I think what you're beginning to see with Rick Scott talked about on the previous segment what you're going to see is a slow roll of a GOP civil war that's going to affect not only Kevin McCarthy and what happens with the Senate Republicans, but clearly Donald Trump and what the GOP looks like in the next couple of weeks, days and months. OK, so if I'm a Democrat, say I'm thinking, well, you know, nothing could be better for me than a civil war amongst Republicans. But would I be wrong? Well, I mean, look, you've got a lot of things to do in the lame duck session next month. Uh, both Democrats and Republicans want to see that done. Uh, the, the Senate map, what the U.S. Senate seats that are up for Democrats in 2024 is not favorable to them. 21 of 33 seats. Donald Trump was competitive in 12 of those 21 seats that are up. And so while Democrats might have glee about this, we have to pay very close attention to the margin that Kevin McCarthy, if he's going to be speaker, faces, because if that number is, say, 218, the bare minimum, or 219, Democrats will try to pick off one or two people to uh, call a floor vote any time to replace that House speaker. So there's going to be a lot of chaos and a lot of conflict over these next couple of months 
And all of that is going to spill out. And look, when there's conflict, chaos and competition, Donald Trump thrives in that environment. So you cannot kind of dissuade or move him aside, even though he clearly had a bad week and Republicans are looking for an alternative. It's just unclear where that's going to be while this slow roll civil war begins. It kind of looked like uh, anyone who tried to hold on to the big lie that the 2020 election was stolen uh, did not fare so well. And with Donald Trump uh, set to, uh, we assume, going to be announcing another presidential run tonight, it is, I think, obvious to everyone that he is not going to let that go. He's going to continue to relitigate 2020. And some say he's running because he wants to relitigate uh, 2020. This is why he's doing this. So if he maintains doing that and a lot of Republicans begin to kind of uh, cleave off of that message and Ron DeSantis begins to take more of the stop, uh, a spotlight, is there a possibility that, say, Ron DeSantis gets stronger and manages to move ahead uh, for the GOP nomination in 2024? Uh, let's game it out and say uh, Donald Trump loses the nomination. Does Donald Trump, because of his ego and wanting to relitigate 2020, start his own political party or run as an independent and fracture the Republicans? Great question, because after Trump leaves office and Joe Biden takes over that very morning. Donald Trump calls when he's at Andrews Air Force Base, Ronald McDaniel, the head of the RNC, Republican National Committee, and tells her he's going to create his own party. That's always going to be in the background for Donald Trump. That's certainly a possibility. And if Republicans move, say, towards Ron DeSantis, you cannot rule out that Donald Trump will do something, especially down ballot. And while many high profile election deniers did lose last week, If you go down ballot, kind of deeper into state by state, 62% of election deniers actually were successful. Now, these are minor offices or in safe Republican seats, but Donald Trump has that following and he can carry that following off to a third party. That hurts the Republican Party. And that is something Republicans are deeply worried about, even with Ron DeSantis and his 20 point win last week in Florida. You know, and I'll need a fairly quick answer because they're going to run out of time. But um you know, it's very easy to forget that uh, the purpose of the U.S. government is, I don't know, supposedly to do things for the American public. Uh, <laughs> I know it's a pretty silly, naive thought. Weird. That's just I, kind I, of a weird I, idea. I know. Uh, but when when you have this, as you put it, a sort of a slow rolling uh, civil war amongst Republicans and then the Democrats were still trying to figure out what they're going to do about Joe Biden, uh, who turns 80, I believe, next week. The fact of the matter is, for the next two years, does anything get done? Yeah, there's a lot have to be done. Debt limits, uh, Medicare, uh, re- refund, uh, reauthorizing uh, the continuing resolution here next month to fund the government. But overall, look, the skills of electioneering running for office are about difference and distinction. The skills of running the government are directly the opposite about that. of that. They're about consensus and cooperation. So running for office is about one skill set. Getting the trains to run on time, completely different, whether that's City Hall in Los Angeles or Washington, D.C., and you're going to run with the horse to bring you. And if that horse is about difference and distinction or negativity, you're going to go with that. That's certainly Donald Trump's forte. All right. Thank you so much, David McEwen, political analyst and political science professor at Sonoma State University. This is KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. Russia has struck back at Ukraine following Ukraine retaking Kherson, launching airstrikes, hitting at least 10 regions and cities. A U.S. official, though, uh, told the Associated Press that missiles crossed into NATO member Poland, where two people have been killed. Well, of course, as you can imagine, this does 
complicate matters, though the White House won't confirm the strike and says it is working to learn what happened. Journalist Phil Littner is back with us. He was in Kharkiv last week when we talked to him. He's now returned to Kiev. Also with us is Shane Harris, who's a national security reporter for the Washington Post. Gentlemen, thank you both for being with us. Shane, I want to begin with you. Uh, what is uh, going on now in Washington as best as you can you can decipher with this uh, reported uh, attack, accidental presumably, on Polish territory, a NATO member at that. Sure. Well, right now, uh, U.S. officials are trying to determine precisely the nature of this attack, which is to say, was it, an, was it a deliberate strike by Russia into uh, Poland, into the territory of a NATO member, or was this some kind of inadvertent uh, missile launch, an errant missile? Was it perhaps intercepted and the debris fell onto Poland? Those are still the kind of big unanswered questions right now and trying to figure out whether Russia intended to do this or not, whether it was actually a deliberate attack. Uh, so, so far, no one is confirming on the record uh, the details, but those are the questions that officials are asking. Okay, Shane, uh, assuming for a moment that uh, Russia says, well, this was inadvertent, this was an accident, uh, the missile was not aimed at Poland, let's just assume that they say this. Uh, If that's the case, and given the fact that, you know, there's a lot of people around the world, they don't want to escalate this uh, right now, Uh, Poland uh, may want to, but with uh, people not wanting to escalate the situation, maybe Russia gets a pass this time, if it was indeed an accident. But that means that an accident cannot happen again, because if it does again, then all bets are off, right? Well, I think if it's an accident, there's going to be an inclination to say, all right, let's just like let calmer heads prevail and not view this as a Russian attack on NATO, because we all know where that escalates to. But yes, to your point, if it were to happen again, that would certainly, I think, uh, uh, undercut the notion that the first one was inadvertent. Um, but, but we're going to be looking at the Russians so far are denying this attack even happened. Uh, so that's complicating matters a bit. But to your, your basic point, if this was, in fact, an accident and Russia didn't mean to do it, uh, I think the U.S. will look at that as a reason not to escalate. Shane, uh, stay with us. Uh, Phil Littner, who is now back in Kiev, in addition to this news uh, out of Poland, there have been a, a fair number of attacks today by the Russians on Ukraine. What's the situation where you are and in the rest of the country, for that matter? Yeah, there was uh, there was an extensive attack on Ukraine today. Approximately about a hundred missiles were fired into the country, uh, all throughout every region of the country. Um, here in the capital, uh, approximately around twenty missiles were shot at the capital. Uh, two apparently got through air defenses and struck civilian uh, apartment buildings. Uh, as I speak now, a, a, a siren is going off, so it looks like we are uh, under um, potential attack uh, once again here. Phil, um, do, do but, you need? Phil, do you need? No, no, to I do leave? not. No, no, I am in a, I am in a secure location already. So, um, anticipating that, that's how we, that's how we live here in Ukraine. Um, again, this, this was anticipated. Uh, after the fall of Kherson, um, many people were anticipating some sort of reaction of this nature. Uh, but, uh, what the Russians have done is just flood the zone with so many missiles, uh, that, uh, and, and indiscriminately attacking. I mean, there doesn't seem to be any really particular, uh, objective except, uh, civilian infrastructure, including electricity. But there are uh, electricity outages all throughout the country. Here in Kiev, there were a number 
of uh, of areas that uh, lost power. The mayor saying about half of the city was without power for quite some time. I myself did not lose any power, but I was aware of others who did. Um, but it was uh, it was an onslaught of attack, and it may have something to do uh, with what happened. Or clearly, it does have something to do, but what precisely we don't know as of yet uh, on uh, Polish territory. But um, you know, this this is very much what Ukrainians have come to almost get used to. Okay, Phil, uh, thank you so much. We, uh, make sure that uh, you stay safe there. I want to go back to Shane in uh, Washington for a minute. Is uh, you're saying that Russia is denying that this uh, incident even occurred? Uh, hopefully, they are going to tell us something else soon. But if they don't, is there a time limit in Washington on when Russia can explain themselves? I don't know about that. No, I think that if the United States develops information on what really happened here, they will be inclined to release that publicly. And and look, Russia has denied repeatedly all kinds of attacks and provocations that have been fairly convincingly attributed to them. So I think it matters probably a bit less what the Russians say. Uh, But but the fact that they are denying this, you know, it might point to it genuinely being uh, inadvertent. Um, But I think we need to, to hear what the U.S. analysis of this is. President Zelensky, I believe, has already labeled this a Russian attack. So from the Ukrainian perspective, um, they may be already persuaded that it was uh, either deliberate or, frankly, may not really care if it were inadvertent. I think that they they would regard it as um, uh, Russia attacking Poland regardless. Well, Shane, very quickly, uh, let me ask you this. Do we know, does the U.S. government know to what degree Mr. Putin has control over his own military? Well, I think that if if the question you're asking is, could, you know, have this happened as a result of somebody uh, on the ground there in his military getting a little bit over here? I mean, it's possible. Yeah, Yeah. I think that's that's plausible. But we we don't really know that right now. This would be such a major escalation if this were an intentional attack. Uh, But but, uh, to some degree, yes, there is a disconnect between, you know, Putin and, and what happens on the ground. All right, Shane Harris, thank you so much. Uh, Shane Harris, national security reporter for The Washington Post. Also, we had Phil uh, Edner back with us, who uh, is uh, in Kiev in Ukraine, where we heard just a moment ago uh, some sirens going off. He says he's in a safe, secure location. Protests have erupted in Iran following the death of a young woman who was in the custody of the country's morality police and a big group of people taking part in these protests for social and political change. Teenagers. A New York Times reports that officials in Iran have cracked down hard on those young people, detaining and beating many of them. Some have even died, shot and killed in the streets. Benjamin Rad is a UCLA professor and Middle East political expert, particularly on Iran and U.S. foreign policy. Thank you so much for joining us today. Are we seeing something different happening now in Iran as as the government appears to be reacting with more and more force to try to tamp this down? Um, good afternoon, and thank you for having me. What we're seeing is differently is that they've been unable to contain and control what the younger Iranians are doing, especially via social media. Every attempt to try to censor, to cover up, and to pretend that these things aren't taking place are getting stymied by very intrepid and clever young Iranians who are using VPNs or other met- any other method they can find to convey to the outside world what's taking place. Place And this is what has definitely frustrated regime officials. Why teenagers in particular? Uh, I mean, Iran is a fairly young country demographically, right? Uh, But is it 
that because of social media, blocked though it might be to a large degree in Iran, is is getting through enough that these younger people are able to, at least they feel they're able to buck the system? There's that aspect of it, a generation that has only sort of lived their young adolescent, pre-adolescent lives um, online or through social media. They are, they've been expressing themselves in ways that other young you know, teenagers across the world do, coupled with a disconnect from an authoritarian regime whose ideology, both religious and political, they don't believe in. They have no attachment to whatsoever. So then you get these these um, institutions in place that block their access, that control their lives, an institution that they have no fondness for and no um, really appreciation of in any way, and then one that interferes with their ability to lead a normal teenage life like they see others doing. It, this this disconnect inevitably w- was going to come to a head in something like this. But now with the um, the the killing of Masa Amini, it sort of ignited this broader movement. You know, it's kind of strange because uh, it was years ago under the under the Shah, even though it was a repressive regime, it was liberalized in a kind of a Western way with, uh, you know, no religious dress was required in public, etc. But this generation, these teenagers, you know, they have no memory of that. They grew up under this regime that they're in now. So how did they begin to get these ideas that there was something different and, and they wanted it? That's a good question. What frustrated the generation before, uh, those who are in power now, they were themselves teenagers, college students in the mid to late 70s when the revolution and process began. They enjoyed a period of tremendous economic success from the oil wealth that the Shah had brought into the country and attempted to really distribute but didn't do so evenly. So you had rapid economic development, but you had uneven or inconsistent political development. In other words, People were provided economic opportunity, but not political participation. And so that disconnect ended up really fueling the resentment that then boiled over into the revolution. This generation is enjoying rapid technological development, but no political development to match it. And so that disconnect becomes very obvious when through their filter of social media, they see how in other parts of the world, people can talk about their government or society in ways that are uncensored. And this is something that they want. So in many senses, it mirrors what we saw in 1978 and 79, the two inconsistent phenomena happening together. I'm also wondering uh, to what degree there is any sort of interaction uh, between the uh, U.S.-based Persian population. And as you know, Los Angeles has a, a large Persian community and those teenagers in Iran uh, to some degree are their American counterparts egging them on? Are they giving them uh, moral, perhaps even somehow financial support or what? The, the, what we're seeing the most, what's been amazing, is they're amplifying the message that's coming out there, whether it's, you know, the hashtag of, um, you know, Zan Zendigi Azadi, right? Women, life, freedom, whether it's making sure that their images, what they're suffering from, also what they're doing, the, the positive things that they're doing, the positive images, these are getting amplified and it's raising awareness in the United States. That is something that the Iranian American community, especially here, has been uh, amazing at doing and supporting in any way they can while being mindful that the Iranian regime will quickly turn around and say what's happening there is a product of 
um, opposition coming from abroad. It's, you know, um, uh, expats. It's, uh, you know, others who are meddling in internal affairs. So there is this balancing act where you do want to acknowledge what they're doing and support them, but not give oxygen to the regime's claims that none of this is homegrown. Thank you so much, uh, Benjamin Rad, UCLA professor and Middle East politics expert, particularly on Iran and uh, U.S. foreign policy. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. The vote count continues here in L.A. County. We were given an update yesterday afternoon. Another one is coming soon. But it's too early to actually call one of the key races, such as the L.A. mayor's race, even though Karen Bass has extended her lead over Rick Caruso. Yeah, there are still tens of thousands of ballots left to be counted a week after the election. With us to explain this whole process, we hope, is Dean Logan, L.A. County Registrar, Recorder, and County. Clerk, Dean, thanks for being with us. Thank you. Good to be with you. So uh, here it comes, and and it's the criticism that we have been hearing from lots of our listeners, and I'm sure you have heard it too, which is that the process is just taking too darn long, that uh, people want to know, understandably, I'm talking now specifically about the race for mayor, uh, and people understand that uh, people are now putting a lot of their votes into the uh, ballot box or into the mail. It takes longer and you have to be really super careful. Everybody gets that. But it still comes down, Dean, to in 2022, surely there's a better way or a faster way to come up with the results of an election that's now a week ago, isn't there? Well, I, th- I think I'd go back to the conversation we had the week before the election where we actually talked about this and 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 we we talked about the fact that if there was a close contest, it was very likely going to be the case that it would be uh, days or even weeks after the election to get those final returns. And that's based on the structure of the laws in California that favor um, participation and the opportunity for voters to have um, as much time to cast that ballot and return that ballot as as they desire and and we we saw that unfold in this election that that um the day after the election uh we had over a million pieces of mail that that um that were that you know were descended upon us that had to be had to go through the process and as you said to be um securely handled and given the same level of of significance and integrity that that all other votes are are given. It is a tedious process, and it's um, by and large a manual process at the beginning of it, right? The opening, the checking of the signatures, and getting those ready to go to the tally process. Once they get to the tally center, that process is relatively quick, and that's why we're able to do these daily updates. But the structure of of that physical vote-by-mail ballot uh, being available to all voters and being available to be dropped off or put in the mail as late as 8 o'clock on Election Day um, uh, just requires that kind of manual um, work uh, and I, and effort, and and it really is in these close contests where that becomes sure. And and and, and I get that, Dean. But but let me ask you a nuts and bolts question here: Is it that does the county need more people to do this process uh, when we have elections like this? Is it a, a a shortage of 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 personnel? Do we need more people? Do they need to? have to work more hours, I don't know, around the clock if necessary. Is that where it comes down to? Well, we have we have literally have hundreds of people working and they are working extended hours. I, I think you have to balance that with the fact that this also needs to be a secure and transparent process. We also have people observing that process. Uh, it's available for observation for candidates and campaigns. Um, 
you know, uh, certainly as we as we move forward, we can look at at different um, staff capacity levels in major elections, but I, it, it still takes time to go through the, those those processes. It's not something that you want to just throw people at without um, proper training and without you know proper you know rest and and respite during that process. I mean, we are we are working uh, continuously. I, I'd also point out that this really is not particularly new. I think that that what's new is that is perhaps the frequency of these. Um, razor thin margins in our contest, but the the extended canvas and the time it takes to process ballots really has always been there in California. What's a little bit different is that used to be provisional ballots where where we had hundreds of thousands of provisional ballots where we had to um, uh, go through the the process of verif verifying the eligibility of the voters. We don't have that now. What we have is is ballots that we know were cast by eligible voters yeah I, they have to be prepared and count yeah i get that part and 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 you talk about the people like they've, they've got to open up the envelopes and everything but what isn't there part of it that can be done by machines can't machines open up the envelopes uh, faster i understand they've got to be scanned but i mean you know they have incredible scanning equipment now that can verify uh what's on a page and maybe we could program in to verify signatures a little bit faster than uh people could just looking at it with their eyeballs well, I think both. I think it's important to know that both both of those processes are are already part of the process, right? So the the ballots are or the envelopes are scanned, and there is an automatic signature verification process. However, but then the, why does it still it, take so long? Because you're talking about a million pieces of mail. So I mean, I would encourage people if they if they wanted to come out and watch that process. Those ballots have to go. They have to be scanned in the the signature verified if the signature doesn't match in the automated system then it does kick out and by law we're required to do a manual check of that and then we do use automatic letter openers of course to open those ballots but there you know there are multiple pages of of hand marked ballots in there that have right. to be looked at before they go through a scanner because you want to be sure that the tally system is picking up those votes so dean let, let, let me change the the sort of universe if you will and and we're living in a say in an imaginary universe and you have the ability to change the process you mentioned before in passing that maybe going forward uh we need more people although you have a lot of people maybe we need more people to count the votes if you had your way what are the things that you would do differently if you had your way and you had the money to get your way to make a process when, especially when you have a close race such as this one is between Bass and Crusoe, would you do anything differently if you could? Well, I would say first, I would always prioritize the ability. I actually agree with the um, importance of encouraging participation. So I, I don't necessarily think it's a good idea to take options away from voters, especially if those options have resulted in uh, more participation than we've seen. That said, I would say that our current voting model in California is somewhat new and evolving. Uh, I, I think that that the electorate is still not clearly understanding that there are 10 days of in-person voting available where you can go in and vote in person at our vote centers. Uh, many of these vote-by-mail ballots were dropped off at vote centers on, on election day. Those voters actually could have cast a ballot at that vote center. They could have, you know, and that ballot would have been counted election night. So I think some education around that uh, would be helpful. Um, certainly continuing to look at, at automation um, options that will speed up the process and um, and and watching kind of what the what the data shows us, I think is something, you know, we always do and we'll continue to do that. Um, it's it's not necessarily uh, the, the kind of work that we that we can that we have 
hordes of people lining up to to do and and as i said it takes it takes some some training and some experience uh with that but um but we're always looking for for new ways to to improve the process so when are we going to know who who wins well, ultimately, this election will be certified at the county level on December 5th. Um, and, and that, by the way, that again, that is the time frame that has been existence, uh, in in the past. That's not new. I think what you're seeing, we're doing daily updates right now. Um, you're starting to see some trends uh, develop. Uh, I think that's going to continue to happen. So I would say by the end of the week, you're going to have a pretty good indication of where the electorate is headed. But, um, you know, as an election administrator, I don't call races. I count the votes. And once all the votes are counted, then we'll certify those results. Dean, is it still too early in your view uh, for people to draw any conclusions? Because, you know, one day so-and-so is ahead, then the next day that person I'm now talking about, Bass, obviously, you know, the headline is, you know, the lead widens. But is it still premature? I I think it is is premature. Again, I I, I don't call the contest. I, what I would say though is that these ballots, each time we do an update, they are a representative sample of the entire county. So they're not coming from geographic pockets of the county. They're coming in in mass and processed as we go. So I think as you start to see updates that are that show a consistent trend, even if it's just incremental, um, I think that that over time does start to to kind of give you the shape of where the electorate was going. And I think, you know, one thing I would say is in the in the mayor's race, um, and I think a lot of people in the last couple of days have, have missed this, but in the very first results election night, uh, Karen Bass was in the lead, and those were the vote-by-mail ballots that were cast before election day. Uh, it was it was the in-person vote that then um, shifted that in uh, Caruso's favor in those election night returns and the first returns in the days after the election. Now you're seeing that shift back uh, primarily with vote by mail ballots being counted. And that was similar to what we saw in the primary as well. So I don't think that trend is unusual. But again, the margin is very close. So uh, anything could happen. All right. Uh, Dean Logan, L.A. County Registrar, Recorder and uh, County Clerk. As we wait to find out who is going to win. Have you noticed that when you go to the store or restaurant or coffee shop, for that matter, that people just don't seem to be as friendly or polite as before. Uh, And if you have, then a new survey can kind of back up that feeling. Now, I I should point out that uh, as somebody who grew up myself in New York City, uh, the notion that that rudeness would even be a topic is beyond me. I mean, it's like, you don't understand that. You don't. Get no, it. I don't get it. I mean, people being rude is kind of the norm. But apparently in the rest of the world, <laughs> rudeness has become a thing, maybe. Yeah. Seventy six percent of people in a survey say they experience incivility at least once a month, once a month. Seventy three percent say it's not unusual for customers, uh, customers to behave badly. And that is up from 61 percent in 2012. Christine Porath conducted the survey. She's a professor of management at Georgetown University and author of Mastering Civility, a Manifesto for the Workplace. Her new book, uh, Mastering Community, The Surprising Ways Coming Together, moves us from surviving to thriving. Thank you so much for joining us. So, uh let me start with the grocery store t- uh, test because you hear about this. You you can tell uh, somebody's character by if they return the shopping cart to the little shopping cart uh, location there uh, versus the people who just take their bags out and they just shove the shopping cart and wherever it goes is where it goes. That's true, I think. 
So uh, does that have anything to do with civility and uh, and uh, general politeness? I mean, it, it comes from the same wellspring, doesn't it? The the fact that you want to return the shopping cart to where it belongs to make it easier for somebody else uh, to get there is rather than just leaving them all out in the open for the workers to have to deal with. And that comes out in, you know, letting somebody else go first in line. Uh, I have done that. Uh, I've got a few items. Somebody in front of me has uh, a lot of stuff, and I know they're getting tired of holding their their uh, bags while they're waiting in the in the self checkout line. And I'll, I'll go ahead and let them go because, you know, life is only so long. That's fantastic. Yeah, we see examples of that all the time, and uh, there were a lot of retail workers that responded about what their lives are like these days. And so, you know, it's even people talking on their cell phone continuously as they check out, you know, but um, most of all, they just, they don't want to be insulted or belittled or screamed at these days. So the bar is pretty low. It seems like Uh, I I like the shopping cart test, uh, but I I think it's, it's um, that, that would be great if that happened more. But isn't rudeness, to some degree in the eye of the of the uh, beholder, and, and I'll, I'll tell you why. I mean, uh, a few years ago when I moved here, I was in my car, and I came to a red light at an intersection. The light turned green, uh, so I started honking, and the car in front of me still didn't move, so I that honked again. <laughs> that was you. I honked again, and at that point, the uh, young woman in the car, the driver, uh, rolled down her window, very annoyed at what she perceived to be my rudeness, and holding uh, up her phone out of the window said i'm on the phone (laughs) yeah i think a lot of it is shaped by where you grew up and where you work like you said i mean i happen to have grown up in the midwest so i admit that there are probably differences between there and new york city uh i think the u.s is really fascinating because there are pretty strong regional differences i mean we're pretty different I've got another question for you, but let me finish this text first. <laughs> but um, is 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 rudeness though? In your survey, are you finding that rudeness is is kind of? I think uh, what I read was that it's almost infectious, right? Are there reasons connected, for example, to the isolation that many people had in the pandemic, to people being now so self? You know, Rob just mentioned texting on the phone, being so absorbed in their phone. Excuse me, in their phone. Uh, I'm choking up at being rude yeah, yeah. <laughs> in their phones that their their sense of civility has changed. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think uh, the number one driver that we found, and this has held true over decades now, is stress. Uh, I think whether it's the pandemic, the economy, war, uh, divisive politics, you know, how work has changed, uh, just the nature of uncertainty these days. I think all of that has contributed to people you know, not feeling as good. Uh, We're certainly taking in a lot of negative emotions, whether that's online and stuff like that. I think um, in general, most of us haven't felt as good the last few years, you know, whether that's, you know, less exercise or sleep isn't as good. Um, Just generally, I, I think people have felt stretched in different ways. And that's always been the number one reason behind this stuff, uh, at least based on our surveys. But yeah, I think technology also plays a a big role. And, uh, you know, it's it's helpful in a lot of ways, but it takes us off track. And uh, certainly on email and things like that, there's a lot more misunderstandings. 
Yeah, so, so there's the, the stress element of that, and, and I can understand that. And there's also the, the health aspect. People aren't getting enough sleep because of stress, so their their hair triggers are ready to go at a moment's notice. But uh, here comes the old man yelling at the cloud saying, it's the kids, they're not being taught how to be polite. <laughs> but that leads to another question. Is that true, and do we see a generational difference in, in between who's polite and who's not? Not a huge generational difference. Uh, I do think that, for example, you mentioned phones and people being on technology. I mean, I think that that's different, you know, so they're used to having their phones on in meetings and texting during meetings and things like that. So it certainly shapes whether people see others as rude. Uh, but in general, we don't find huge differences uh, across, you know, people are very good at pointing the finger. <laughs> At other generations. <laughs> Which is rude. Uh, well, it depends on the finger. Uh, yeah. That, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Magic so, finger. I, I think you hit it early on, which is it's all in the eyes of the beholder. And so I just, I, you know, we have to admit that up front. This is very subjective. And, uh, you know, just even culture differences and things like that. Um, or where you worked or what industry you work in, where you grew up the kind of teachers or parents you have. I mean, it all factors in, I think. You mentioned it's different. Rudeness is different in different parts of the country. What about in different parts of the world? Absolutely. So uh, I know, you know, just teaching MBAs, uh, you know, depending on where they work or where they've worked in the past, where they come from, um, they cite very different, you know, examples around this stuff. And, and if you just think of email, like, some cultures, you're super direct. We tend to be pretty direct in the U.S., but in in other cultures, that would be rude to just, you know, not acknowledge how are you, how's your family, you know, yeah. um, all of that. So it really does depend. And there was a joke going around in the, in the class around someone who worked for an international government agency around OK means three different things in the U.K. And I didn't know that. Wow. You know, but Yeah. So uh, apparently, you know, even within a country, uh, a term can mean a lot of different things. So I think it does get complicated, especially if you're working with people from different nationalities or, um, you know, coming from from different regions, even as you mentioned. Well, at the risk of offending you, let me say, okay, and uh, (laughs) thank you for joining us today. Sure. Uh, that is Christine Porat, the, the survey and uh, about uh, people uh, being no. rude. You know, I saw a meme once. You know, we talk about people. Shut up. I don't want right. to hear. I don't want to hear from you anymore. People on the phones <laughs> where they're texting everything. They yeah. showed this meme with this picture that was taken back in 1910. And it yeah. was a line of people all reading newspapers and ignoring each other. Do you think I'm rude? You've known me for Absolutely a while. Absolutely not. I think you're among one of the most civil and polite people I have ever known. <clears throat> <clears throat> <clears throat> Sorry. <clears throat> I I have some choice words, but I can't say it. No, don't say them. No, we're going to do save them for tomorrow. We're going to do KNX in depth tomorrow. That's been today's thrilling episode. Thank you so much for joining us.